What is one thing that folks in the compete profession need to stop doing? Zena, why don't you start this one off? Things that it's taking themselves way too seriously. There, there are several people we know who are very much in love with the sound of their own pontification. Too many of them, actually. <laughs> it's kind of why we wrote the book. Right. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Competitive Enablement Show on the Compete Network. I'm your host, Adam McQueen, and in today's episode, I was joined by three special guests and authors of a brand new book on competitive intelligence. Elise Knuckles, the Senior Director of Competitive Intelligence at Palo Alto Networks, Phil Brin, Associate Director at Sedulo Groups, and Zena Applebaum, the VP of Product Marketing at Thomson Reuters, join me to give the inside scoop on their upcoming book, The Practical Guide to Competitive Intelligence. What I love about my conversation with these three and the entire purpose of their book is to fill two sorely needed gaps in the world of compete today. The profession by nature can be private and often theoretical, but they're lifting the lid on all of that by telling real stories of real folks living in the world of competitive intelligence day to day. The screw ups, the messy moments and the lessons learned along the way. If you want to pre-order the book, which I'm sure you will after this conversation, all the details will be in the show notes below. With that all said, let's get into today's episode. All right, today I am joined by three special guests. I have Elise Knuckles, the Senior Director of Competitive Intelligence at Palo Alto Networks. I've got Zena Applebaum, the VP of Product Marketing at Thomson Reuters. And I've got Phil Britton, the Associate Research Director for Sedulo Group, a leading competitive intelligence consulting firm. Thank you all for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason we've got you on, there's a special reason we have you on today, is the three of you have joined forces and alongside some others to create a book on competitive intelligence, the practical guide to competitive intelligence. So first things first, Elise, what was the inspiration for this book? Oh, gosh. Um, it it really, it, the inspiration came in a bar. We're all all good things happen. Um, and it, we, we, where were we? We were in Chicago. Um, we were at a, yep. a CI fellows meeting and, uh, we got together afterwards waiting for flights and such. And I think we are just a exhausted and be frustrated because a lot of what was talked about was theory. And we just kept hearing about all these theoretical ideas and principles and thoughts, but no application, no, like hands on, this is how stuff gets done. Um, and that's where the, we just started kind of chatting about where is that book? Where is that resource yeah. for some of the newer you know, people coming into this profession? And um, more rounds came, more conversation. And we came back down to it saying, dude, we need to make a book. The three of us, we got to get a book together. And that was really the start of it. And I think we quickly realized about five seconds later, yeah, we can't write the whole thing. We need to go tap our yeah. friends. And that's really, I think the... The very beginning beginnings of this entire process. Did I miss anything? Guys? No, it's totally cliche, but it was like literally on the back of a napkin. Yeah, we started sketching who did we know who could hit various topics. So as we were talking, it was, oh, we totally need to talk about this. Oh, we should absolutely cover this. Who can we beg, borrow and steal from in order to make that happen? 
And for listeners out there as well, you can pre-order the book. You can get on the wait list. The, all of the information will be in the show notes of this episode. So make sure that you get your name on that list as it comes out. Who's the book for? And why should someone in CI read this book? Um, I'll start with that one. So it, we put right in the foreword that this book is for somebody who probably fell into competitive intelligence. It's almost a running joke in the field that nobody actually went to college for this and everybody just kind of except woke up one day and said, oh, <laughs> yeah, except uh, uh, one of our authors did, but, but, or maybe two. But for the most part, it's you wake up one morning and then you discover you've actually been doing competitive intelligence, but you didn't even know what it was. And this book is kind of for those folks. This book is for the people who are doing it, working for a company, trying to make a difference, trying to keep their job. We joke that it should have been subtitled how to do your job and not get fired. <laughs> um, and it's also the antidote to a lot of the stuff you hear if you go to competitive intelligence conferences where people you know, say, oh, if you're not you know, addressing the C-suite every week, you're failing. Oh, if you're not doing X, Y, or Z, you're doing it wrong. Oh, you absolutely need to generate an ROI. You know what? I can't even spell ROI. So I, I wouldn't worry about it. It's how to make a difference. Elise, do you have any uh, follow-up on that one too? I know that you, you're passionate about that, the theoretical, so to speak. I saw, I saw, I think, eye rolls amongst all of us when you mentioned the theory and the theoretical sessions that you go to sometimes at conferences where there was a lot of hot air said, but maybe not necessarily tangible takeaways or things that you can actually apply yourself. Yeah, I think the area I get really frustrated is in, in, in high tech, there is, yes, there's an element of strategic intelligence that needs to happen. But what really irritates me about the learnings and then what people are preaching in CI, most people are preaching in CI is you have to be strategic. You have to be talking to the C-suite. Well, most of what we're doing in my job, daily job is tactical. It's like literally knife fights. How do we win business today? And I've said this for decades. You, if you don't actually win business today, your five-year strategy doesn't mean crap because you might not be in existence in five years. You got to get your ducks in a row in the knife fights in the battlefield today in order to be a contender in the future. And that was really kind of part of that theoretical nonsense. Yes, it's important and applicable, but you got to have both and stop dismissing tactical yeah. as being lesser than the other. They're both important. Totally. And, and honestly, doing one really well gets you buy-in for the other. So you've got to earn trust. Um, our good friend Craig, Craig Fleischer will point to the CIA suggesting that it takes seven years in an organization to build trust. Most of us are not in our organizations for seven years. So you have to fast track the building of trust on the tactical level um, so that you then can be trusted on the strategic level. And you got to be able to do both and you've got to be able to manage up and manage down. Yeah, tactical to me are the individual Lego bricks and strategic is what you build out of each individual brick. Mm -hmm. so, so as you mentioned, you as you were in the bar coming up with this genius idea, I'm not sure how many drinks deep or how many napkins you were writing on, you realized you wanted to tap into other folks, your peers, your friends in this space as well. You wanted to get a collection of stories and make this as tactical as possible. There's so many different things that you've hit on in this book. Is there a favorite chapter that you have, Zena? Ooh, me. Um, so I love the Looney Tunes. So nods to Elise. I love Elise's chapter. The other chapter that I really love, um, and I'm like kind of embarrassed to admit it, uh, but I love the chapter on failure. 
I love the chapter on like not hitting the mark in competitive intelligence. Like what happens when you go to the C-suite and you're like, here, this competitor's in the market, we need to pay attention. And they're like, nah, we don't need to worry about them. They're not really a, they're not really a factor. Like what happened to BlackBerry? What happened to Kodak? Like when that's happening to you and you see it and you tell somebody and they ignore you, um, A, how do you recover as a CI practitioner? And, and B, what do you do with that? Like, does that crush your soul that you're not really good at what you do? Um, or do you just say like, they're not really good at listening and you move on. So I think that chapter is a really, um, tell some really interesting stories. That must be really difficult to separate sort of the personal emotion that you feel there and separate from like the work that you're doing. Like you've done the work there, but if they're, if, if they're not listening, it's not, it's not a, it's not a failure on your end. Yeah. Unless somebody perceives it as such, right? Like you may have shown them all this. I mean, I believe that the, the chapter is called missing signals. You may have shown them all the signs they chose to ignore them. You may have documentation of them choosing to ignore them, but six months or a year later, you're still fired. Yeah. And there's another chapter that goes along with that about keeping human beings in competitive intelligence. So you can do all your analysis, you can do it all in PowerPoint, but you have to be able to communicate it to humans. So we have a chapter about keeping the humans in CI and another chapter on storytelling. Um, and again, you have to pull all of those aspects together to get people to listen sometimes. Elise, did you have a favorite chapter on your end? I honestly, I can't pick one um, because I think that it every chapter brings passion and enthusiasm around the certain subject because we picked, we cherry picked people based on their experiences and what they've brought to the table and what they're passionate about. And I honestly believe if you are passionate about something, you're going to kick ass at it. And I, there isn't one chapter that stands apart from the next. I think that it's really, it's a book for everybody. Someone will find, everyone will find something that they can gravitate toward and they can learn from. So I, I know I'm playing the democratic Switzerland card, <laughs> but I, I can't pick sides here. <laughs> Well, let, I want to get into some of the things you touch on because in the preview of the book, like you mentioned, there's a lot of different stories and some of the, like, the key things that you mentioned right away is like this, the human side of CI and you want to get as tactical as possible. One of the elements you touched on there, Phil, was storytelling. In, yeah. in your careers in CI here, what's the best piece of CI storytelling in the wild that you've seen? I can give you an example. Um, I remember listening to one of our colleagues talking about the outcomes of doing a war game exercise. And instead of just dryly saying, here's the best case scenario, here's the worst case scenario, he put it to movies. And the example he used was 3D printing. Is it going to be cheap, stupid trinkets? And he called that outcome Toy Story. Is it going to be very specialized? And he called that output Avatar. Is it, Or is it going to be universal? And he called that that one limitless. And he used popular movies at the time to put around those scenarios and it, be, it became very sticky for people and they instantly latched onto it. And, uh, and that was a great example of keeping not only the humans in there, but taking something that's dry and boring and making it interesting and relevant to what's going on in the world today. One of the stories I like to tell, I was um, at the time when I was with my former employer, one of the global large law firms in Canada, I sat down with the head of our oil and gas practice, and we were a big oil and gas firm at the time. This head of our oil and gas practice said to me, oh, I'm glad you're here. I'm actually doing your performance review right now. And I was like, oh, I, I hope it's a good performance review. And he said to me, I was just reflecting on all the information you send me. 
And he said, a third of the time you send me things that I already know. So this would be like, I'm looking for signals. I'm looking for early warning signs, right? He says, a third of the time you send me things that I already know. A third of the time you send me things that I already know, but you provide additional color, spelled with a U. And a third of the time you tell me things that I didn't know. And I was like, oh, so should I stop sending you like one third of what I send you? And he said, no, because you'll never know what I know. And I never know what color I'm missing. And it was a really good representation to me of how CI can be very tactical and very strategic at the same time. This is a guy who was responsible for probably the biggest practice at the firm. And he was relying on somebody like me to keep him informed about things that he may not know about or things he may not know fully about. And I won't know what he knows because we never know what other people know. Our job is to try to connect those dots, but we need their participation to do that. And so it's a really good example for me, and I tell the story a lot, of how we don't know the impact we're having on people, but if we keep being tactical, eventually we'll be invited to be strategic as well. I love that example. And as a fellow Canadian, I appreciate the youth, the usage of the youth, Zena. I think these are both ex excellent examples of, of stories in the wild about our careers, but I think the core fundamental problem is there aren't enough of them. They're, they're, we don't talk about our failures, our successes, or any of what we do because we're secretive. We're, we're, we're corporate spies by definition, according to my husband anyway. And so we have to keep all that locked up and not tell anyone and not share. And that's, that is another fundamental problem in our profession. There's other organizations that are sharing constantly about what they're doing and they're learning from it. And that's another reason why this book is so important because you just heard two examples of stories from, from Zena and Phil, but this whole book is stories. It's literally the life of the authors and what they've experienced. And so you're getting a, a piece of that from a, across a variety of different backgrounds. And this is the kind of stuff we need to get out there more, for sure. And if you want to get super meta, there's a chapter on storytelling in the book from one of our great CI friends and fellows, Suki Fuller, as well. So um, storytelling on storytelling. I know. Personally, that's the one that caught my eye. Uh, the storytelling, I mean, there's been a couple when I've interviewed different folks, and I think to Phil's point, it's just the stickiness, right? There's, there's a lot of information yeah. that comes in, but if you're able to tell that story in a captivating way and something that just breaks the kind of monotony of the things you hear sometimes at work, uh, even my friend Justin over at High Spot, I remember him just talking about it as if it was the Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Their, their whole theme is into race car driving. Everyone, he's a F1 head. But uh, just like that, I don't know, that little sprinkling of flavor really does go a long way. Uh, there's another p part of the book as well. You talk about reporting, a slightly outdated perception, maybe of folks in compete that they're cubbied away. They're, they're doing just, like you mentioned, just strategic work, just hours of research. And there's just an 80 page report that gets dropped on the desk. That's obviously not the case anymore, or that may never have been the case. Can you tell me how you, or you've seen other folks report their findings in a way that doesn't feel like your audience has to read a novel? Yeah, yeah I, I'll say you, you shouldn't just have one reporter product. You should have a portfolio of products. Some things don't need the novel. Some things you need the headline and you need to read above the fold in newspaper terms. And other ones, you need a complete strategic deep dive. Know your audience, know how they like to consume information and know that certain people will read everything and every footnote and will question you down to the third decimal place. And other people, you know what? You need to give them a comic strip uh, because that's their mentality, that's their speed and that's how they absorb information. Yeah, we always added a TLDR, too long, didn't read at the beginning of every weekly report item. So, because you've got your smart people 
they want to read all of it. And you got your people who are just barely skirting by in their job and they're going to read the TLDR. But the important thing is you make TLDR fun. You have some, you know, or you make your, your write-ups in general, assuming your corporate culture tolerates it, have yeah. some fun in it, be sarcastic, be, you know, like be mean to your competitors, be, you know, have some Easter eggs, make it like kind of fun for people to read your reports. Cause if there's content they need to read, like financials, that's so boring. But if you can have some fun with it, people will read it and remember it because they enjoyed reading it. But the TLDRs are really good just to get people to get at least the basics and then pretty pictures. If you can take a theme, you know, or a, a subject or a, an idea and put a picture with it, they're gonna, that's going to just be maybe a little bit easier to remember and more enjoyable to read. So I, I always encourage my teams to, you know, when you have a, a theme you want to get across, find some image that will really resonate. Um, and then, you know, like the, uh, just know your audience is different. Every audience is different. You got to have a little bit of everything. There is the guy who will read the 80 page report. So you still have to have it. But for most people, reading is hard. Yeah. And so one of the things, again, to be to bring it down to the tactical, they're the people who I send a text, right? They ask you a question, you know that they trust you enough that it's literally a text. There are other people who you do your two page memo and you include all your like links, if it's electronic, your links to other material they can read, or you can be like other material available upon request and you list with the other, and you know, like there are the people who are going to ask for all the supporting data, all the supporting reports. Um, there was one attorney, we, a lawyer we used to work with where he always asked for the supporting material. And as a, as a rule, we didn't send it because I wanted to get people out of the habit of having to read the supporting material and just trust our team. So we would never send it, but if they asked for it, we would send it. And I would like hit send on the email on the report and we'd count to 10 and within 10 seconds, inevitably we'd get that. Can I get the full report? Yes. But that's that dude. Like he just always wanted the full report and I get it. Um, but there were other people who were like fine with the text. So just know your audience. Elise, to your point about being a little bit spicy or sarcastic, one of the funniest or one of my favorite uh, examples of that was um, Nick from over, but he was banana tag at the time. And what he used to do in his kind of like competitive newsletter, his, his report, he used to like to throw in uh, glass door reviews, like scathing glass door reviews of their competitors' work experience. He just used to throw it in right at the end, just like a little bit like, hey, just a reminder. <laughs> and it, I, that one always sticks with me. And it's a, a great example of, of that piece. I'm, All right. I'm, I'm totally stealing that. Um, see what McAfee, we had John McAfee. He was a gold mine for fun things that we could write about and random stuff. So <laughs> now that he's dead, well, or dead, we're not really sure. Uh, that's debatable. We do need materials. So glass door, I'm going with it. That's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> that's take it, take it, take that one for free. All right, I've got some rapid fire questions about the compete space. Having the three of you on, you guys have been so, so fun already. And I want to get your takes on some of these before we get out of here. So starting off first, we'll do a, we'll do a round table around the horn on these ones. Uh, we'll start with Phil on this one. What is a previously okay. held belief that you had about competitive intelligence that's now changed? Um, I'll go back to the ROI question. I used to struggle with how to demonstrate that I was adding dollars back to the company. And I have shifted that to the short GI Joe knowing is half the battle. Zena? We don't wear trench coats to work. <laughs> and perfect. <laughs> Elise, <laughs> uh, I would say that um, strategery is not the only uh, part of uh, competitive. I used to think that, and I was very wrong. 
So I, and I say strategically, strategery on purpose. <laughs> strategery. We'll put it in the vocab. Uh, if you woke up tomorrow with 10x the budget dedicated to compete competitive strategy, where would you invest in it, Elise? Hundred percent into my team. Either if you have extra training, offsite, offsites, getting to know each other, getting in person. Just it's the core team. The people you have are your most valuable assets. Phil, people definitely people. Whether that's more people. Um, better compensated people or just like Elise said, taking care of the people. Zena? Yeah, I got to go with them on this one. It's all about the people. I like it. I like it. Uh, last one here. What is one thing that folks in the compete profession need to stop doing? Who wants to take Zena this wants one? Zena wants to take this one off. Things that it's taking themselves way too seriously. <laughs> <laughs> That oh, one hundred percent on that one. There, there are several people we know. We won't name names, um, who are very much in love with the sound of their own pontification. Too many of them, actually. It's <laughs> why we wrote the book. Right. <laughs> yeah, we. Uh, real quick, I'll, I'll tell you an analogy. My bo- old boss, when I like fifteen years ago, when I worked at Best Buy, he went to one of these conferences and he heard some of these people who just kept droning and droning about stuff, and he's like. It's like the professor in college who had a very wide, very short tie. So we started calling these people the wide tie people. <laughs> and this book is the antidote to the wide tie. And that's, that's why we decided if, to write If it. that doesn't make you buy this book, I don't know what will. No wide ties were harmed in the making of this book, I will say. <laughs> and we love them all. And they're a part of our ecosystem. But the question was, what should we do? What should people in the compete space stop doing? And it is taking themselves too seriously. Elise, do you have anything, do you have a, is yours following that or do you have anything else you'd like to add on the, what, what folks need to stop doing? It's kind of on the same theme, but this whole notion that you have to have an army of analysts and you have to be a manager and a director and a VP. I'm sorry, guys. Heidel doesn't mean crap. The more analysts you have, the more target, bigger target you have in your back for potential layoffs. So knock it off. You can do a lot with a small team and your title, as long as you're happy and you're compensated well, stop with the title madness for God's sake. Done. Off soapbox. More information on the book. Elise, we were talking just uh, just before we hopped on here live. Do you want to give the audience a little update on where they can get the book, when they might be expecting it to come out? Yeah, we've got a little update. It's not, um, not hard dates yet, unless Zena and Phil, you got another update. But right now, we, we are officially hitting printing. I believe starting next week. So yes. So anyone who's put a pre-order in, thank you very much for that. You should be receiving your book shortly. Um, and then we're also having a couple additional avenues for distribution. So if you're an Amazon person, you're an Apple person, we're looking at e-reading capability and adding the book there too. So what we'll, we're going to do is keep you all informed through LinkedIn. So please follow us um, on LinkedIn. We'll, we'll let you know as soon as those avenues are open. But yeah, pre-orders are, 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 should be printed momentarily, which is exciting. Perfect. And yeah, we will put all the pre-ordering information in this episode. We'll have it up on social. You will have to be blind to not be able to see it. Uh, you've got to get this book. I, I'm excited to read it. Uh, this was this was so fun talking with you three. This is, I think, something that the compete profession needed and your personalities shine through on this. I can't wait to see what happens with this book. Thank, Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And we'll catch everyone next week.